Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, the Elixir docs are getting some new features. I saw this tweet that was shared by Jose Valim, where he was just teasing this link to the docs and saying, hey, notice anything new? And this was on the Elixir 1.16.0 dev branch. So it's not fully released yet. But when you check out, I've got a link in the show notes, it's the, like the gen server docs. What was really cool is that you're seeing more graphs. There's different types of graphs too. Like one was showing like the callback lifecycle as a graph to help understand that. So that was really neat. I think there might be an opportunity here to be getting improved diagram support in docs. Hey, just wanted to follow up on a that that OTP26 uh, bug that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Uh, Alex Kubitz has sent out a PSA about that. I'd run into that as well. So just want to bring some closure to it. So it's not fully solved, but I think the OTP fellas have figured out what it was. Definitely wasn't related to Alpine. So we can clear that off the table. It wasn't It wasn't OS related necessarily. And here's what they found, quote from them. It takes matching small byte unaligned uh, bit strings from a larger binary, like one that's done by Elixir Mint, WebSocket Frame Decode Raw. I just have that function right out of my back pocket, you know? Plus some bad luck with with being almost out of process heap space. So yeah, I, I guess with most bugs, you got to have a stroke of bad luck, but then also have to be doing some pretty unusual things. And I guess it's not unusual to decode like raw byte streams. So if you're doing a lot of decoding raw byte streams, such as, you know, connecting to a WebSocket and you have non-text, non-UTFA kind of text going over it, you'd be more likely to hit this bug, which could explain why it might be less predictable. So they haven't fixed it yet, and they're hoping to have it fixed in OTB 26.0.3. So we're on .2 right now. So the next version, they're hoping to have that fixed uh, patch version. So it's not released yet, but I'm looking forward to it. So if you were affected by it, there is hope. Look for the next patch, and it should be fixed. It is on the horizon. Well, we mentioned previously about a new library by Chris McCord called DNS Cluster. And it describes itself as being a simple DNS clustering for distributed Elixir nodes. And while we saw that it was moved into the Phoenix Framework GitHub organization, which makes it feel a little more official. And then Jason Steves, a Phoenix Core member, he recently posted on Twitter saying, Chris McCord doesn't think this is important enough to have a blog post, and I disagree. (laughs) So he went ahead and wrote a blog post about how it works and why it's awesome. And he uses fly.io as an example of how you might use this to very simply, or with not a lot of code, cluster your nodes together in an environment where DNS is used to find other machines. So it's really cool. It works really well. And it's a light library. So you're not going to feel bad like you're bringing in a lot of code here that's going to be wreaking havoc on your code base. And next up, next LS version 0.10.0 was released. It has a little batch of new features. I just wanted to call them out, like the ability to auto-update. The command line interface gets the help flag, the version flag. A perhaps bigger one is a go-to dependency. Looks like it might have been implemented. And progress messages for workspace indexing, along with a number of bug fixes. So it's really cool just to see the speed of development as it's trying to get up to the point where a lot of people will have pretty much the main things they're looking for when they go to use a language server. 
It's now listed on VS Code's open extension repository as well. So I have a link to that. So congrats to Mitch Hanberg for the progress that he's been making. All right, next up, uh, the Ash Framework has announced a new release of a project that surprised us. It's about double entry accounting. So before I talk about the project, let me just define that for everyone, in case you don't know what that means. <laughs> double entry accounting is a way of keeping track of debits and credits all right, uh, between at least two accounts. And so a common example is that you might just have a cash account. And anything that draws, you know, anything that draws out of it, if you're, you know, your, your typical bank account, I got, you know, a, a $5 in there. So I credit $1 from it, credits money going out, and I debit $1 to the grocery store to buy a lollipop, right? That's how that goes. My cash account is the first account, grocery store is the second account. So that's the double entry accounting, right? So that $1 is represented doubly so as leaving my account and going into another account. And it could be like just transferring within, you know, my own bank account from my checking to my savings, that kind of stuff. All right. So that's double entry accounting in a short gist. So back to Ash framework. So here's a quote from them. They just released the first version of Ash double entry, a flexible double entry accounting system that you can drop into your application. It works with or without Ash in the rest of your application, but has superpowers with an Ash app. So it's pretty neat to see that because you don't have to be like a bank to care about double entry. You know, anytime that you have, you're involving payments, maybe you might appreciate a double entry bookkeeping system. But anyway, it's nice, nice of the Ash team to, to release that. And so I'm glad they did. Yeah, I've worked on financial systems before. And this type of work, this double entry accounting and ledgers and things like that has probably been done many times by many different teams and many different projects. I haven't used this specific library. I'm not sure. I mean, he describes it as being flexible. I don't know how perfect a fit it will be for everyone, but for a lot of those systems where you're just wanting to represent some basic accounting uh, to keep track of things that you could perhaps export later to an accountant or a bookkeeper to actually finish up your finances, this looks like it could be something that's really helpful. So it was just an unusual thing to come out of the Ash framework. At least I didn't expect it. So <laughs> it's pretty cool. You know, I appreciate his mindset, which is like he probably had a problem to solve, like a business use case that required double entry accounting instead of just solving it like generally I do. He open sourced it and solved it more openly for everybody. And then he probably used this library and went and solved his business problem. Like I feel like I could do way better at doing this. Like so many problems I've solved and just in my top secret private code base that could <laughs> could instead be like contributing to other people. Yeah. Yeah. I I I feel the same way. I, I just need to default stuff to being open source. Like Truly, how much of it should be proprietary? I don't know. I think the reason we all resist that a little bit is because am I going to have to maintain this for like three <laughs> years from now when I'm not using that project anymore? Yeah, am I going to have to reveal how terrible my code could be? <laughs> right. There was like some blog post or, or some experiment where like anybody who contributed, they just added as a contributor, official maintainer of the library. You just like you open source the ownership as well and just good luck see where that library goes. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I would want to take one of those dependencies in though. <laughs> I think I'm scary. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> how well is this being watched? Yeah. Yeah. Ash is none of that for, for what it's worth. <laughs> I mean, there are lots of contributors, but there is a clear maintainer, Zach Daniel, and he's a good guy. You should, if you're ever going to a conference, you should look for Zach and he, I'm sure you guys would share a lot of stories. So Zach's a very friendly guy, lots of stories, fun guy to talk to. You should look him up. Moving on, there's a nice blog post by Andres 
Alejos, sorry if I butchered your name. It helps connect many machine learning libraries to their Python counterparts. So for those of us not familiar with the Python side, like myself, this is a helpful resource that kind of pulls things together. So it's called Understanding the Elixir Machine Learning Ecosystem. And towards the bottom, there's a little summary with a table of libraries that has a brief description, kind of what it does and and what the library is called in Python and what its counterpart is called in Elixir. So we'll drop a link in the show notes if that's interesting to you. And next up, there's an Elixir tip from Alex Kutmos on using Elixir as a shell scripting solution. So we've got a link to the Twitter thread. I definitely recommend checking out the Twitter thread because there was other follow-up discussion saying, oh, you could also do this. Then this is a great time where you can use mix install to add library dependencies for your scripts. So there's some extra benefits there to checking that out. But yeah, if you're wanting to just stay in the Elixir language, that's where you like to spend your time and you don't want to spend a lot of time worrying about the syntax of how to write bash to do an if block or something like that, and you want to do some basic shell scripting around your applications, definitely something fun to try. Just a little hash bang Elixir. Your shell will know what to what to do. That is, that's always a good reminder. Speaking of executing stuff in other languages, version 050 of Dino X was released. Uh, this is a library maintained by Alex. This is the Alex Kupmo show today. We should have, have, have him on the show, maybe. First, let's describe what Dino is. Dino is described, they self-described as a next generation JavaScript runtime. Secure by default, native support for TypeScript and JSX. It's supposed to be high performance async input output, like with Rust and Tokyo, uh, toke.io kind of stuff. Uh, backwards compatible with Node.js and NPM. Okay, so that's Dino. It's supposed to be better JavaScript runtime. So Alex Kutmos is the author of DinoX and explains the library this way. So DinoX is designed to make it simple to run scripts using Dino from your Elixir application. So think of it as a nice wrapper around port. Dino is a modern runtime for JavaScript and TypeScript that uses V8 and built-in Rust. It is secure by default, so you must opt into each level of access that your script needs when running. So that's nice. This includes reading environment variables, and it's for this reason that Dino was selected as I needed a secure sandbox to run some external JavaScript and TypeScript programs. And the quote, that sounds nice, right? Like we can't we can't do everything, right? This is maybe the naivety of, of Elixir is that not every library is available in Elixir. There's probably nice libraries in, you know, in Ruby and in this case, you know, in JavaScript land. So go npm install that library that you need for your niche thing and run it from your Elixir program. And Dino X is just a good API to handle that external dependency like that. So yeah, if you need to execute JS on the server, check that out. If you need to run J- JavaScript on your server, you should ask yourself, why do I need to run JavaScript on my server? <laughs> and then if you must run JavaScript on your server, go check out DinoX. Next up, we saw a neat tip from Peter Ulrich. He shared how you can use tags in tests to more cleanly customize your tests. And he even wrote a blog post to go along with it. So If you find yourself always creating an authenticated user every single time, well, this might be a cool little tip for you. And last up, Dagger.io now supports Elixir. So Dagger.io is a programmable CI-CD engine that runs your pipelines in containers. And Dagger executes your pipelines entirely as standard OCI containers, and this has several benefits, compatibility with the Docker ecosystem. So if it runs in a container, you can add it to your pipeline. As a cross-language instrumentation, teams can use each other's tools without learning each other's languages. What this library is, it's, there's an Elixir package called Dagger. 
And what it is, is it's like a, a DSL around writing Elixir code to execute and configure your CI CD tasks. So who is this library for? Well, Dagger might be a good fit for you if you're a developer wishing that your CI pipelines were expressed in code and maybe had some more functionality available to them, some other insights that you could pull in like logic instead of just trying to do it all in YAML. Because I know some people are not fond of YAML. I never know how many indents I should be doing (laughs) because... I just do it until the code highlighting is happy. (laughs) Yeah, there is like a YAML LS. uh, There's a YAML language server, which has been pretty nice, but it's also pretty noisy because it like it knows that it's a GitHub action YAML, you know, and then there's some it just automatically goes and fetches the rules that somebody wrote for GitHub action YAML, like the top level keys that are allowed and what the keys uh, uh, accept as values. Oh, yes. It's like undoubtedly every time it tells me that keys are out of order or, you know, something that's uh, it, do- it doesn't matter. But language servers are pretty cool and that can help with YAML. But but if you want to get out of YAML land, yeah, Dagger is pretty cool. I haven't used it, but it looks pretty neat to stay in your comfort zone and in your language of choice. So it's pretty neat to see Elixir picked up there. And that's it for the news. Elixir and Phoenix are incredible. They make it possible to quickly build highly resilient and reliable systems capable of operating at incredible scale. Fly.io is a great place to host Elixir apps. You can deploy your app to multiple regions around the world with a private network linking them all together so your app can cluster and globally do some incredible Phoenix magic. Give your users a more responsive UI while writing less code and moving the app closer to your users without needing an ops team. Check out fly.io for your next Elixir app. Today we're being joined by our special guest, Matthias Polischkeit. Matthias, welcome to the show. Hello. Well, I'm glad you could join us. It's not the most convenient time of day for you, but we're glad to have you because someone pointed out the library that you'd worked on. One of the things they called out was like, oh, this really makes it easy to do pagination in web pages. And I think, you know, we've all done pagination at some time. You know, and back in Rails, we were doing like the normal like page one, two, three, like with the links and then the next and the previous. And then more recently, it's all become infinite scroll, which is another form of pagination. And I always knew that, oh, there's always these funny, weird edge cases around pagination when you're paginating data, if you're just doing it like by pages of data. So I thought it was cool that you had built into this library that we're going to talk about cursor-based pagination. But then I realized, you know, pagination, while that might've been the feature that like brought my attention to what you've done here, it is not the main selling point for this library. And I want to get your input on the background, like what you're trying to solve, what you're building here with this, this fun library. But before we get into all that, why don't you tell us a little about yourself? Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? My name is Matthias Polischkeit. I'm originally from Germany, but at the moment I live in Tokyo. I work at a company called Scoville, which is situated in Tokyo with another office in Kyoto. The stuff I'm involved in is all in the HR recruiting domain. We have uh, several different products in this domain, and most of them are backed by Elixir backends. And we also have some uh, Elixir frontends, so live view frontends uh, on some of these services. Nice, nice. Yeah, so we got we to jump into this library you've created. And I haven't even mentioned the name of the library because I think that's a topic on its own. The name of this library is called Flop, like F-L-O-P. 
And the project description says, Flop is an Elixir library designed to easily apply filtering, ordering, and pagination to your Ecto queries. This is a good time to jump in and talk about like, you know, why did you create this library? What is it really setting out to do? We got the the top line there, but like, go ahead and give us your intro. In general, just pagination, filtering, ordering, those are things that I pretty much need in every application that I ever wrote. It's not fun to implement the same thing over and over again, of course. So I wanted to have some solution that would solve that problem for me once and for all uh, and across projects. Besides work projects, I'm also working on on side projects uh, where I also, again, need this feature. So I thought maybe just create this library and make it nice so that it works in all the contexts that I work in. As I mentioned kind of at the top, like we've all had to do some kind of pagination, right? One of the those weird edge cases that kind of teased is like, you know, say you've got a, a CRUD app, just like basic, you know, data entry. It's like a, a data heavy app, right? And I've got a list of like my index page where I can see all my things and I can, you know, go to next page and next page. It's not like an infant scroll. This is like just navigating pages. So I have like page one, page two. If I'm on page one and I delete an item, like because it's not a live updating page, it does not bring the next item onto the page that was on page two. So when now when I go to page two, I've actually skipped seeing one of those items. The count has changed. Those little kind of edge cases can be a problem. When I learned about that, the best way to approach this is to use cursors. And cursors being a more indexed-based way of finding that next chunk of data to get. Having a library that has already solved that, so I don't have to keep resolving that, can be really helpful. Because I've had to, had to do that too many times. I agree. You get tired of it. Like, this is not the exciting part of my app. This is not what I wanted to be working on. Maybe we can talk just a little bit about like that pagination use case, even though that's not like the, the highlight feature of the app. It's just, it's a pain point for me. I guess that's what it is. I have some little trauma that's left over from that one. (laughs) (laughs) So what you said with deleting an item and then going to the next page and then not seeing the last item on the, that, that would have been on the next page because now it's on the previous page. It makes sense. Uh, that's an issue, but also adding new items, of course, that would appear on the first page and then going forward would lead to items that you've already seen on the previous page suddenly reappearing on the next page. That's a problem, especially if you have a high number of writes or a high number of deletions. Flop supports this kind of pagination which with page numbers and page sizes as well, but you can easily switch to cursor-based pagination. And how do you construct that cursor? Like what is it, what data is it based on or how does that work? There's, there's actually two terms that you maybe should know. Uh, one is cursor pagination and one is key set pagination. They're often used interchangeably, but in the end, cursor pagination just means that instead of a page number, you would have a cursor, which is derived from the first item in the result set and the last item in the result set. And you give that to the client. Client wants to go to the next page. It says, give me the next 10 items after this end cursor that you gave me. Or or if you want to go back, then you uh, say, give me the last 10 items before the start cursor. Uh, So so the cursor is usually uh, opaque to the client. So it doesn't do anything but just sending it back in case uh, you want to switch the page. 
the server can do anything with the cursor and, and it can encode anything. So if you, for example, look at the absence relay library, by default, it uh, just encodes the offset actually in the cursor. Then you still have the same problem, but now you name it cursor pagination because you use a cursor. <laughs> so that doesn't help much. However, uh, when it comes to key set pagination, instead of uh, encoding an offset, you take a value from the first item on the page to construct this cursor. So for example, uh, so the key set always depends on the fields that you order by. So in the simplest case, you just order by ID, for example. Um, it of course needs to be a sortable ID. So uh, it needs to be an integer ID or a UUID V7 or uh, UDID. Uh, the cursor just has the information, uh, the ID for the uh, first item on the page is this, and for the last item on the page is this, and that gets encoded usually in something like a base64 kind of string. And then when it makes this, the query, instead of using an offset in the SQL query, it just says, give me all, uh, give me 10 items where the ID is larger than this ID from the cursor, or where it's uh, less than the ID from the cursor. And that, of course, works also with multiple order fields. As long as the combination of fields is unique, because otherwise the, the order and the pagination will just be inconsistent or non-deterministic. How do you solve for that? Because sometimes you do want to order by something that isn't unique in a UI. You might, you might order by, you know, some, some sort of category, like a status or something like that, where a whole bunch of items are going to have the same status. Yeah. Like a status. So that still has to be like a problem that's solved is how does flop uh, assist with that? Well, flop does not assist with that per se. That's up to you. But the recommendation that's also in the documentation is if you want to sort it by fields that order by a field that is not unique, then you should always add, uh, for example, the ID field as the last order field. And then it will be unique. Easy enough. Yeah. The name flop. It's a fun short name. It's easy to type. I'm just curious, like, why did you choose that name? I I think back in those days, I was very much into acronyms. So it's just the main features as an acronym, FL for filtering, O for ordering, P for pagination. And really, the only regret I have is not adding the R from ordering, because then it would have been Florp, which is clearly the better <laughs> name. <laughs> I, I like how you were previously into acronyms. Like, uh, like today you're not into acronyms, though. They're they're <laughs> not not so great. I guess it's it's less so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice, cool. Okay, so so you, 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 we went into depth about like cursors, we uh, into key set, you know, pagination. But there's some there's still some trade offs with that. So like that is a good way to construct those barriers you know, the, these dividing points between these pages and to do that consistently and correctly and efficiently. That's the other part of that, uh, that we may have glossed over is that key set uh, pagination is also fairly, as long as the ordering uh, and filtering are on, you know, columns, I guess that can be indexed. I mean, that's for, that's the best kind of combination here, but, but I'll call it florp. Florp uh, and flop here don't really construct the database indexes for you. That's, that's for, that's for the application to to handle, but there is a, a another trade off to key set pagination. You you can't navigate to arbitrary pages. You know, like 
you might see that UI pattern where you're on page one and you know there are 20 pages and it's got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, you know, all the way to 20 at the bottom. You can't just click on six, you know, and go to the sixth page with key set pagination because, well, then you'd have to kind of traverse the whole thing to figure out where those boundaries are. And then at that point, you've kind of lost your efficiency. And so key set pagination is kind of only great for previous and a you know next UI pattern here. And it doesn't really give you like a count either. You know, you don't really know how many are in, are in the total set there as well. But yeah, is, are there more tra- trade-offs? Uh, yeah, I mean, what we glossed over, we we uh, talked about the writes and deletes that screw with the pagination if it's page-based. But also there's a, a performance aspect. So if your table grows very large, then page-based pagination is just uh, slower. It will get slower uh, the higher the offset gets because the database will always have to scan up until the offset. It will it will get slower. So, um, yeah. But with Flop, since it supports both both kinds of uh, pagination, you cannot just start with, with the easy way, with the pages. And once you notice that the table uh, grows too large and the performance isn't what you expect anymore, then you can easily switch to cursor-based pagination. Uh, and also for the page numbers, well, you always need to make the second query to do this, right? So uh, you need to make one query to get the actual re- results uh, for the page, and then you need to do a second query without the limit and the offset to figure out how many pages there are actually. Yeah. Typically, getting an absolute count isn't really what folks are looking for. They're looking for more like an approximate account. There's actually a cool trick that you can do, at least with Postgres. You could do a simple you know, count ID on this table, and that'll get you the exact account at that very moment. But that's also, that can be pretty slow. There's another way that you can get like an approximate count that's kind of managed by Postgres vacuum stats on that table. It kind of keeps track of that for different purposes, but it's an approximate account. It, it could be way off. It, it really kind of depends on your settings, but it's been close enough for me. Uh, and it only gets updated when Postgres vacuums itself to clean up all the dead tuples out there and then it'll update the approximate count but that's generally good enough and i suspect that that's why ui patterns might give you like you have a previous button the next button and it might say of about ten thousand or something like that right they'll give you a fuzzy number out there and i i suspect that they're doing the fast count on the table which is pretty nifty and quick tip if you're using phoenix live dashboard and the ecto psql extras package that kind of help the the dashboard that package has the fast count query on it so you don't have to make it up on your own but i'll also post a, a link that gives you the the raw sql for determining that it's kind of hairy like it's it's kind of stinks <laughs> it's a it's really big complicated thing and i have to understand the database internals to determine like what are you really querying for because you have to you have to query settings. You have to figure out what block sizes are and like what the database uh, is. Yeah, it's it is not friendly at all. But thankfully, Ecto PSQL Extras that package has it all in there for you. Anyway, I'll post some links for those that want to discover that. But that fast counting can be a nice partner along with key set pagination to give you that little count. Well, what I think is interesting is this whole idea of like that UI pattern of you know I've got all these little links, you know, to to the different pages I could jump to. And usually, if I'm having to jump to page seven, which I had to do recently on something, so it stood out in my mind, 
it usually means I probably just shouldn't be jumping around data like that. I should probably be filtering better. And I think that comes into this other feature you have, which is filtering as part of the flop library. We've all end up building our own, like a query API for easy way that's not just building ecto queries or, or even ecto query fragments, but like some way of expressing that we want to run some type of limiting query. I want to filter by this and maybe do a like on that and this field and order by that and being able to express that. And I know a number of us have all done our own thing, our own way of implementing that. And I don't think anyone has really even shared them much. It's like we just all re-implemented it. You're aiming to save us all pain and hassle of having to create our own approaches and putting that into the feature set of flop. So why don't you give us an intro to how you're approaching filtering here? So the outset of the library is you get some parameters from the user. So they are unsafe and unvalidated. So you get them via an HTML form or via a GraphQL API or JSON API. And then you want to apply those parameters in some way to an existing actor query. So when you work with flop, you still have to write your own actor query up until the order and pagination and um, filtering part, which is handled by flop then, but it's added to the existing query. Among the par parameters, you can pass a list of filters and each filter has a field, an operator and a value. Operators are the, the usual operators that you would expect. So greater than, uh, less than, uh, like, like, and, I like, I like, and, I like, or, like, or empty, not empty, and so on. It's a whole list. There's also a documentation page where you see uh, how that translates uh, into SQL in the end. When you set up flop for filtering, you have to derive uh, the flop.schema protocol. Th there's two required fields or required options there. One is the list of sortable fields and one is the list of filterable fields. Once you have set that up, Flop is able to validate the parameters that you give for filtering, like the value. The value type matches the type. It can be cast to the type that's uh, required for the active query. And it will, of course, make sure that you cannot filter by fields that you don't want to users to be able to filter by. So that's the easy case then with uh, normal fields as they, as they are called in FLOP. So those are just fields that are on the actor schema. Usually filtering requirements are a bit more complex. There's some more filter uh, field types that you can define. For example, you might have a user's table with a given name and a family name, and now you want to have a single form input to uh, filter by the uh, full name. So you can say, I have this compound field with the name full name, and that is supposed to search on the given name and the family name fields, and then Flop can apply the filter that you give it on both of these fields, and you just uh, say the, the, the filter field is then the full name, the name that you give it. Then there's custom fields. It's a bit uh, like an escape hatch for anything that Flop cannot actually do for you. So in that case, you just reference a function. You can define the actor type so that Flop can still validate the filter value. But then in the end, it just calls this function that you reference and with, with the query and with the filter. And then you have to apply these filter parameters yourself. You can do that, uh, use that, for example, if you need to cast a value before you 
make a, a comparison, for example. And then a common use case, of course, is you have some fields from a joint table, and that's what join fields is for. Uh, so Flop does not join anything for you. You need to do that yourself. But you can say, okay, I have this named join field with a name again. You give it the name of the binding and you give it the, the actor type and the field name, and then it can apply the same filters on that name binding. And then there's also alias fields. That's not for filtering. That's only for ordering. So uh, in one of the recent actor versions, the selected S macro was added to the query API. So if you need to filter by, for example, the count of children, for example, uh, you can use an alias field for that. Yeah, as I was looking through your API, it's, it's making a little more sense now because I see that it says like, you have an example where it says like flop, validate, and run, and it takes in parameters. So you're saying like the parameters come from anywhere, so they need to be validated. And I like this because looking at your... if. If you open up your GitHub read, readme at the top, it shows like an example of how you can specify for each schema, like what's sortable, what's filterable, like you're saying. And it's going to be so easy to just add a new field there. Like I've done this so many times and it's never ended up being this easy. Like my most recent version of handwriting this from scratch was like a, was a enum reduce over the parameters. Right. And so that allowed me to whitelist which parameters I take in. And then I would write a manual Ecto query for each one that I whitelist. And so I'm like reducing over building an Ecto query, which is almost a little too clever and fancy for people to just like, like if you come across this reduce in the code, you're like, so what's going on? That's like the first comment I ever get on that piece of code. <laughs> no, I've done that a lot of times. I would know exactly what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good. We've got somebody who would understand, but it's like, this is so cool. It's like, if you need to add a new sortable or a filterable thing, there's a list here where you add it on the schema. No crazy enum reduces, maybe in his code base, maybe in the flop code base, but you know, the API just looks really simple. Yeah. I wanted to cover something just to make it clear in people's minds. Like, so if I'm using this library, I would set up my base query specifying, you know, using Ecto that it's from this table, maybe it's from a view, and I'm joining in these other things. So I'm defining all of that, even like my foreign keys are all set up there. And then for that extra stuff of saying how I want it ordered or paginated or filtered, that's where this library comes in. And those are the things you're adding on. So people can check out the GitHub page, the project where you have some nice samples. And I wanted to highlight the way the filters one work and just kind of describe it for the listener because it can be a little bit hard to understand, you know, just from abstract ideas. So imagine a map where you have the key of filters and then you have a list of all the filters. Each filter in that list is a map where it says field is name and the operation is I like and and the value that you're going to be performing on that is the text Jane. So like that's the data that you're passing around. And that's being turned into a filter. And what I like about this approach that's better than any of the other approaches I've done myself is that this can actually be turned into a query params without me having to do extra work for me to say, I want this filter to be expressed in the URL. So if someone passes along this URL, they can get back to the same filter set. I love that it does that too. That's a real win. It's like, oh yes, <laughs> I don't have to build that as a separate feature. Query params is like a real polish thing, right? Like if, if you can browse around the app 
and copy and paste exactly where you are and return there. Well, I, I like I leave happy feeling good about that website. Like I really love when people do that. When you're like hitting the next button and nothing's happening in the URL, I'm like, oh crap. Like I need to remember what I'm doing here. <laughs> so so speaking of, you know, Matthias, uh, can you tell us about what Flop Phoenix does for folks? Flop is the library that's doing all the active stuff, validating parameters. It defines two structs, flop struct for the validated parameters and the meta struct that you also get back when you use the mentioned validate and run function. So that holds the things like the total pages or the start cursor, end cursor, depending on how you use it. And flop Phoenix defines a couple of Higgs components, Phoenix components for pagination, for cursor pagination, for sortable tables, and for filter forms. And filter forms, I, I liked your approach to this, because when I saw that you're doing filter forms, I was like, wait, well, what if I want to style it the way I want? Like, maybe my app has a very clear style, and I'm using Tailwind, and maybe I have a, a UI person who says, this is what I want it to look like. And I was like, oh, no, is this going to auto-create the filter forms based on and using its own styles or something like that. I, I was really pleased to see that you're not doing that. Maybe you can explain a little bit about how the Flop Phoenix filter form part fits in to a form that I might already have or a, the UI that I want. One thing that Flop Phoenix does is it implements the Phoenix HTML form. Was it form data? I think it's form data protocol. Uh, that's the same protocol that's uh, implemented by Phoenix Ecto for the change set. And it's also implemented for a plain map and for the atom. And uh, Flop Phoenix uh, uh, implements it for the meta struct that you get when you make a query with Flop. That means you can pass the meta struct that you get directly to the form component. Or now the recommendation is to call the to form function and assign the results, the form struct to the live view socket, and then pass that to the form component. So what you have to do is you, you set up your normal form, you use the normal live view form component, pass the meta or the form generated from the meta struct. And within there, you can use the filter fields component. The filter fields component does not generate anything that's visible. It just generates invisible things. There's these, these, these components for these uh, three different parts or feature sets for ordering, pagination, and filtering. The thing is, when you paginate, you will, will still need the order per, uh, parameters and the filter parameters in the URL, for example. When you sort, you also need the, the filtering and the pagination. When you filter, you well, you still want at least to keep the page size and the order parameters, of course. So hidden inputs are generated for these additional parameters that have nothing to do with filtering. And then filter fields uses the let attribute to pass the Phoenix HTML fields data. What is it called? Forgot. Uh, this is a struct uh, that has the information like the name of the input and the value and things like that and the ID. So that struct is in the end passed to the inner block of that. So it works similarly to the inputs for component actually. And then you can build your markup as you, uh, as you want. So it will automatically generate the inputs for the hidden inputs for anything that you don't want to manipulate, but the inputs for the 
filter value input you have to generate yourself so you can just pa pass the field struct on to your normal input component that's like the the one that's now generated by phoenix 1.7 yeah i was also pleased to see that you know it's using the new form data approach too which it's great i'm i'm really excited about this i think it's uh it's like hmm should i try and try and stick this into the app i have already been working on for a long time that doesn't have this in it <laughs> All right, so Flat Phoenix looks really good. I love that. Well, first of all, that it's modern with Phoenix, with with newer Phoenix versions, and because you know when they change the way that forms are done, then you've got Live View in there and it streams now. So Flat Phoenix handles all of that, and it handles it from what I see quite beautifully. I've used other libraries as well for handling pagination, and the one that I've been using lately has been Quarto, and it's been fine. Right, I don't recall there being any HTML handlers in it, however, and Flop Phoenix seems to check all those boxes. Now, I'm curious, Matthias, when you were writing Flop in Flop Phoenix, did you have some inspiration from these from other libraries? I, I know of Scrivener as well. What are some differentiating pieces of Flop from the rest? I looked a little bit into this other libraries. So that was uh, Scrivener, Quarto. Uh, there's also, I think, one called paginator it's just for cursor pagination also i saw today on hex there's one package that i haven't seen before i earlier said about relay absence relay that it encodes the offset in the cursor and there's apparently one package that does real uh, key set pagination for absence relay so maybe that's also an option if you're use just using graphql but I think none of these libraries really handle filters like Flop does. And I don't think any of them have Keeks components, Phoenix components that are in any way up to date with the latest live view versions. The other part that I found pretty interesting, Cade, maybe you know, you, ha you have more personal experience here, but I don't ever recall like marking up my structs, like my schemas, like Ecto schemas with things that are sortable and filterable or whatever which typically leads me into having to write more code on my own, which at that point I might as well just handwrite the whole thing. It's that's a slippery slope. I've commonly find myself in, but Kate, you, you've, you've used this before. Like, tell me, you know, what your experience was, you know, with filtering and getting that glue onto the, the page. Like how much code did you have to write on your own? I would say the same thing that you're saying, David, like the thing that's sticking out to me here is how you can like decorate your schema. And then the library can understand a little bit about about your schema and validate it. But yeah, I definitely have my fair share of, actually in the app that I work on today, there's like three different ways that I've done pagination. And I've <laughs> like experimented different ways. And like the third one is the best one, but I don't, I'm too lazy to go back and fix the previous two. And so, yeah, the, the, the Heeks component to this as well is, is very intriguing and it's, and it's modern live view changes fast. So I don't blame, like, I, I, I see like, Scrivener Phoenix. I didn't notice that before. I didn't notice how many Scrivener additions there are. It, it, it hasn't been updated since the days of Heeks, or you'd have to do some work to to make it work this way. I guess, it, yeah, that's worth bringing up, right? Is some pagination libraries were created before LiveView, and there is there is still like a lot of good, useful, you know, ways to use like plain EEX templates, but they're not really adapted to LiveView. And so that's where Flop Phoenix has a strength is that it actually works with Phoenix Live View, which is really great. <laughs> and the new function, the Heeks functions, right, for com function components. Yes, 
Right. So the first version actually didn't take live here into consideration at all. Used it for just ordinary controllers and it should still work with that. And yeah, I was very excited about all those live view versions that came out during the last year. Just to confirm here too, like we were talking about live view and the latest thing in live view is Phoenix streams and flop Phoenix does work with streams, right? That's true. That would be relevant for the sortable table component. And it works exactly like the table component in Phoenix 1.7 works. So you just pass a stream instead of a list of items. And uh, then in the let attribute for the columns, you have to match on the tuple. Instead of the single item, you always get the tuple with the DOM ID and the item. Gotcha. Yeah. And uh, I remember one of the later releases of LiveView included the ability to reset the stream which made pagination like possible at all. I, I had a, a ugly, ugly workaround before that, but now it's really easy. <laughs> <laughs> we are about out of time. I know it's like middle of the night for you, so we don't want to keep you up. But is there anything else that we should touch on before we let you go? So, yeah, e even if you don't want to use the X components of Flop Phoenix, there's some miscellaneous functions in the library as well for just building query parameters. And it takes into consideration here that you might have defined a default limit, so it will not add the default limit to the query parameters and things like that. It's highly customizable. Also, the URL building. So the default mode is just you, you pass a path as an assign, and then it adds the query parameters to that path. But you can also pass a custom function for a custom URL builder. So if you want to have the page in the path parameters instead of the query parameters, or you want to have a category uh, ID within the path parameters, you can do that as well. Nice. Yeah. So I totally recommend people check out the two GitHub projects, which link to each other, but Flop and Flop Phoenix. Just to you know, check out the GitHub page. You've done a nice job on the README where you give an overview of how this plugs into different pieces and, and what the code looks like. Because I think this is actually really useful. Like this might be something I, I'd be trying to retrofit into a project. I'm working on a project right now that's very data heavy, lots of CRUD stuff, and then other sections where it's not so much, but there's searching and filtering that you would want to do in these other areas on all this data. And something like this could just really simplify some of that and get some of that other benefits of like Cade was pointing out, like putting it in the URL so that it's, you know, it's something you can pass around. Like here's a link to the thing that where, you know, I'm, I'm reproducing a bug or just here's the list you're looking for. So I, I really appreciate that. So thank you for the extra work of making this into a library that you could share with people. So I guess my next question is, what's next for the library? Is there any like major features you're like, oh, I'm really excited to add this or, or any gaps that you're wanting to help fill? And is there a way people could get involved? And is there anything you're looking for help with? A flop from the beginning was uh, made to be a query builder basically for Ecto. In the latest release, I sneakily separated the parts that are specific to Ecto from the generics. And now there's an adapter behavior that is still undocumented because I want to work out whether it actually makes sense the way it's written before I make it public. But internally, it's already used. So there's an Ecto adapter. So I want to try to write some more adapters and see whether this might be useful for, for other contexts as well. I've used the Geeks components from Phoenix successfully, for example, 
for paginating via an, uh, another API of an external service that works. But in the end, you just have to build the, the structs um, from the responses and build the um, requests from the parameters from the flop struct. And I think some of this might be generalizable. For example, I would really like to see that at some point, maybe your Postgres database isn't up to task anymore. If you have very complex filtering requirements and huge data sets, then maybe you at some point need to switch to something like Elasticsearch. So it would be nice to have the single interface for pagination and filtering in, in the form of flop. If you could just switch out the adapter to Elasticsearch, for example, that would be very nice. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm using the library heavily in multiple projects, but there's some features that I don't use myself. So I was going to just write a demo application to help me develop that better. For example, for the filter forms, my filter forms that I built always have a fixed set of filter fields, but the, the form data implementation takes into consideration that you might want to have a dynamic form. And that's something that I want to build. So in that case, uh, the, the filters that you see would always depend on the, the filters that were actually used for the query. The idea is that you can uh, dynamically add more filter inputs, maybe with a select on the f on the field and uh, select on the operator, and then uh, with the input. Hmm, that's an interesting idea. Yeah. So if people want to follow the progress of the library or they want to get involved, how should they do that? They can just watch the GitHub repository, I guess. I'm always open for comments, and I'm also curious about how users actually use the library and where. And it's always helpful if people just don't understand how something works, because that means the documentation could use some improvements. So please use issues and discussions on the GitHub pages. All right. Well, thank you, Matthias. I think from our discussion, it kind of crystallized in my mind a lot of the ways this solves some of those problems for us that we continually are having to redo as devs on projects on many projects and sometimes you know we'll just copy and paste over this whole chunk of code to the next project and it's a lot easier if we can rely on a well thought out library so thanks for the work you've done and sharing it with the community but unfortunately that's all the time we have for today thank you for listening we hope you'll join us next time on thinking elixir